Welcome to the Trail Less Traveled. Missoula is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and read more about this week's show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon whitewater guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. This afternoon, the Trail Less Traveled is being recorded in eastern Australia. We're recording in Caloundra on the eastern coast of Australia, about 100 kilometers north of Brisbane. From where we sit, we can see the ocean and the kite borders out there going out for a rip. We're recording inside in order to uh, make the show clearer for you because recording on the beach today would have been quite a windy situation. Regan Gordon is an artist, an adventurer, and an adrenaline seeker. Regan, I want to dive deeper into your time in the bush with your grandfather. In your country, Australia, there is a long lineage of passing down knowledge from our elders, and in particular, jumping one generation, so spending time in the bush with your grandfather. As a child, I did spend quite a lot of time in the bush with my grandfather. From about the age of 12, we were invited to go on bushwalks, which were quite lengthy walks. You would often travel 20 or 30 k's in a day, just on foot through all sorts of trails and, and one of the, the issues was was actually knowing where you're going so basically we relied on the maps that Gramps would bring and he would teach you how to read the map specifically show you the topographical lines so you understood the the range of hills and valleys we were going through you could learn to count the valleys you've gone through so you knew how far away you were but but one of the most important things was actually always knowing which direction you're traveling so he would teach you how to understand or how to find north basically from understanding the time. So if you didn't have a watch, having a vague idea of what time of day it was was the most important thing. And then that would, of course, align the sun to a certain part of the hemisphere. So say, for instance, if it's 12 o'clock in the bush, the sun's in the north, so straight away we can work off the sun. If you're looking at the sun, to your left is the west and to the right is the east, and behind you is the south. Obviously, it gets a little bit more complicated as we get into some of the other hours of the day, but, but essentially using that mechanism was always enough of a guide to give you an indication of where you were travelling. The other concept relevant to knowing where you, which direction you were travelling was actually knowing the geography of the area. So knowing where you were to start with was relevant. You're south of this river, north of this river, west of this ocean, or east of this ridgeline that you wouldn't be able to climb up. So there was always some defining thing that you would have learnt first that was part of how you would know where you were going. At the same time, Gramps would try to help you keep yourself orientated physically as well. He'd talk about drawing a map in your head as to where you've travelled, uh, as well as the physical way you're manipulating the map in your mind, putting physical, visual points on that map walked past an intriguing looking tree with you know, incredible markings on it and big bulbous knobs coming out of it and broken limbs or something like that would be a landmark on a track where you turned or there was always a way of adding something to your geographical picture, your, your mental map and constantly reaffirming where it was you were going so that you, you were basically going to be able to get back home often we'd walk into people's paddocks at the end of a 
at the end of a long road. We didn't walk into someone's paddocks and, and then you were off the trail. So if you had no idea where you were going or, or what it was you were, you were heading to, you know, then you'd definitely get lost. There was a spot on the Shellhaven in the Great Dividing Range just west of the Shellhaven region. There's the beginning of the Shellhaven River and it's where two or three rivers actually meet and that's what starts the Shellhaven. To get there we had to drive quite a long way and then we, we could only take the car so far before we had to walk down this person's fire trail that went straight to their property and then across their property and, and up to their farmhouse to introduce ourselves, which you know was another one of those lessons Gramps sort of taught me, the mannerism that you treat the landowners with and explained to me that he'd, he'd do the talking and I wasn't to speak unless I was spoken to. And, and these were some pretty rough people that we met living out there on this farm. It was a, a motley crew of blokes, uh, father and his sons, and, and they were as rough as guts. They, they were really funny-looking blokes. And, and the whole journey to their house along the fire road was littered with empty beer bottles so you know they were no classy fellas anyway they were lovely we told them where it was on their property we were headed and they explained that we were more than welcome to go there and pointed us in the right direction regardless of the fact that we already knew and yeah off we went and so with that journey essentially knowing that um, their property was on the southern side of the beginning of this point and this point was in a gorge meant that all we had to do was walk a certain distance onto their property and turn north until we hit the, the gorge, which would be the obvious boundary, and then walk along the gorge to, to where we were going. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the time Gramps didn't stop to teach you something. He didn't focus on the point he was teaching you something. It was more often he would show you as you were going or talk about it as you were going, and it was like he was trying to develop in you a sense of reassurement. So you felt safe. This is what we're doing. This is why. And then you would develop a sense of safety with that. You'd you'd be comfortable. You're like, well, okay, I could trust in that. The the proof in the pudding for me in the respect of the things that Gramps taught me was that when Gramps wasn't there, I would still use those same mechanisms to find my own way through the bush on adventures with mates out on push bikes, playing in the bushlands, down tracks on motorbikes and things like that. Quite often we'd find ourselves in the middle of nowhere and I'd have one mate saying well it's this way to home and another mate saying oh, I think we've got to go that way and, and I'd be like no sorry guys follow me it's this way I've always had a sixth sense when it comes to if I've been taken somewhere once I can almost definitely get back there by myself even places I was taken as a child that I've tried to retrace in my steps as, as an adult some 30 years later and can still find that exact trail that exact spot and take you to that special spot that Graham showed me many many years ago so mm-hmm. he helped us develop a way of memorizing things and using our memories in in more than one facet so to be the visual look of an area the thing you were talking about when you were there he'd, he'd triangulate a memory so that it was so much stronger than just a simple vague memory it was it was it had a very clever way of always testing you he was always trying to teach you something and quite often it was an underlying lesson. It wasn't so much an obvious lesson. There was more obvious ones where he'd sit down with a piece of paper and make you answer math questions or mm. write certain things and spell certain words, and they were the more annoying ones. I didn't like them so much. But, yeah, he taught you a lot of lessons quite simply, even things like we would stop through the bush to drink. We took water with us, but we always treated it as a scarce commodity. That water that we took with us was more for the purpose of if something went wrong. Mm. We would drink it, 
but we would try to drink the water that was already around in the local areas. So this involved drinking out of creeks and streams and things like that. And, and a lot of the time, the general rule is just don't. It's just not healthy, especially in the more modern society, especially in more developed areas. You're going to be drinking waters that have got pesticides and herbicides and fertilisers and, and God knows what else is in it. The places we would go walking quite often not near farms. It was dense bushland. So a lot of those creeks were, in some respects, much safer to drink from. He'd teach you the techniques of how to, one, either drink directly out of the creek by essentially lying like a lizard mm-hmm. and drinking from the surface itself and trying not to stir the water at all. And sometimes in more flowing conditions, he'd teach you, you know, to pick a spot that had a, a more cleaner flow or, or something like that. Most of the time, there was never an issue. There was a couple of times we boiled the water to be safe and there was only one time I ever got sick from drinking the water from, from the stream. And that was a good lesson too because it reaffirmed the reason why you don't just drink any water from anywhere. Yeah, there were so many different things like that that Gramps would teach you. The the simplicity of important things like building a fire, you know, he taught us how to build the fire, not just how to, you know, stack wood together, cover it in fuel and stick a flame to it. Gramps would teach you how to build a fire and you had one match. That was it. You go, all right, are you confident that your fire is good to go? Have you set it up properly? You're going to get it to work with one match. Mm-hmm. And then off you go. There was even a time we stopped to go for a bushwalk. And we stopped just beside this hand-carved sandstone tunnel through a ridge. It was carved out by convicts many, many years ago during the settlement years of Australia. It's a beautiful tunnel, beautiful sandstone. But, yeah, we parked just beside it and our bushwalk started there. It was early in the morning and often when we first started a bushwalk it would start with a, a, a billy. We'd boil up a billy and, and have a cup of tea. So we had to start a fire in the rain and this is the first time I'd ever had this scenario un- unfurled with Gramps and, and he basically explained the way around it. And We essentially got around it by picking up wood and tinder and kinder that was underneath things. So anywhere that there might be wood that's dry, start with that first and then he picked wood that was going to burn definitely things that hadn't soaked up a lot of moisture and, and lots of really small sticks it was that was the way that he, he you know dealt with the fire once he'd established the flame he protected the flame made sure it stayed alight and didn't let the rain interfere until the flame was strong enough to handle the rain and, and then we're off so as I've grown older especially when we go camping with friends I, I often like to encourage them to start the fire with the same mechanisms and in the same manner even to the point where we'll go as far as using a flint and striking our own spark and kindling that in a little in your hand and then popping that into the fire to start the fire as if that's the match itself. So it's hard to say all of the knowledge that Grant's passed on to me because a lot of it was done so subtly. And at the same time as we might be walking in the bush learning about geography and directions and, and things, he would be teaching you life lessons in mannerisms and, and uh, behaviour and, and morals and things like that. He, he was always telling you stories about things he found inappropriate or th- things he loved or he was teaching you the magic in things. Australia isn't just the most pleasant place. There's so much beauty, but a lot of it's in quite harsh things as well, like our poisonous animals, plants you don't want to touch or get involved in. There's, there's vines that'll rip shreds off you and things like that. So being aware of snakes 
and the native animals was always a, a concept. Knowing where to expect to find them, especially spiders and snakes, was relevant. Even scorpions. The Australian bush has a lot of little baby scorpions that are absolutely cute and gorgeous, but they are knockout deadly. And so, growing up in even growing up in Sydney, where the Sydney thunderweb was renowned as one of the most poisonous spiders in Australia, and redbacks are quite common as well. There was always a lot of lessons to learn, and knowing the nooks and crannies that they like to live in was the secret to not getting yourself involved. But the first problem you'd find is if you're going to start a fire, you're going to have to start hunting for wood in nooks and crannies and in the long grass and places where the snakes and spiders are going to be. So the lessons were relevant there as well. And I had a massive fear of spiders and snakes as a kid. I remember remember walking past a spider on the way to the toilet in the first house we lived in and I hyperspaced from that spot to almost outside of the house in a split second with a scream that would remind you of a, a pack of teenage girls listening to Justin Bieber or something it was <laughs> it was just wild I'm embarrassed by my own behavior to that extent and over the years of having to deal with deadly animals and spiders and snakes and to be honest a lot of the time I I don't encounter them because they hide themselves well they're more afraid of you than you are of them they're not out to kill you and eat you they're only defending themselves and it's more a case of you back them into a corner and they come out fighting some of them are a little bit nasty but if you were going to deal with snakes and spiders obviously keep your eyes peeled and and, you know walk with heavy feet that they sense your vibrations they sense you coming they back off spiders are very very aware of the movements in the air around them they feel you coming on their web they'll often run off their web to the side i've walked through so many spider webs and been covered in so many different spiders it's not funny but the honest truth is most of the time that spider's not even in the web anymore and it's you dancing around like an idiot that's probably going to cause more harm than the spider's bite. We'd find ourselves picking up bits of wood and sometimes you'd use the technique, you kick the piece of wood so you know there's nothing on there or you whack it with another piece of wood or you pick it up and spin it around so you can see. And there's been times I've picked up pieces of wood and had spiders run across my hand and coming back to that sense of dealing with fear, that, that was one of the ways I've always manipulated fear was to engage in it so whoops spider ran across my hand I don't throw the piece of wood in the air and endanger everyone else around me I'm about flick my hand to flick the spider off I'll even blow it off with my mouth bring the spider closer to my face and then having friends that haven't had that training or haven't had that sense developed into them has been a great joy of my life to be able to to um you know throw a spider on a mate or pick a spider up and just run straight at a mate and see them scream like little girls is <laughs> it is one of the most entertaining things you can do people have just an inherent fear of all of these animals and some people have developed an ability to to conquer that fear and, and respect the animal for its dangerous abilities but then at the same time still be able to handle it or leave it alone and not have it be an issue like i can sleep with a huntsman in my room it doesn't bother me. I've been over to friends' houses and they've been screaming, oh, there's a huntsman in the baby's room, what are we going to do? And, and I've used the old classic you know, big plastic jar over the huntsman, slide a piece of paper up in there, talk to the huntsman the whole time, let him know what you're doing, let him reaffirm with him that it's all cool, or her, and then transport them out of the house, put them down, take the paper off, and they wander out of the jar and everyone's happy. Remind us what a huntsman is. A huntsman is one of Australia's coolest spiders. So they grow quite big. They move very fast. They've got really gangly long legs. Yeah, they're like little spaghetti noodle legs. They can grow anything up to the size of your hand or bigger. They're furry. They have an intimidation factor that is off the charts. When they run along the ground, 
they can be quite fast and run quite normally, or they can bounce as well, like a jumping run. That is just so scary to see. They're generally really friendly. I've only ever heard of a few people having issues with huntsmen or being a bitten or attacked. They're an amazing-looking spider. They'll scare the shit out of almost anyone. And they come out of the weirdest spots too. They'll just suddenly appear, and, and that's usually what freaks you out more is that... And, yeah, but they're very friendly spiders. That Their bite stings... It, you'll be irritated, but you won't die. It's, you'll definitely survive a huntsman bite. A, a young child or a very, very old person might pass away, but it's more commonly it just it just stings like all buggery. We're speaking with artist, adventurer, adrenaline seeker Regan Gordon, and when we come back, we're going to learn more about snakes and my favorite animal, the sharks. Regan is a surfer and a surf skier as well as a downhill mountain biker. And later on, I'm really keen to hear about his time working on the Pirates of the Caribbean films here in Australia. But Regan, it's now time for another song. I'm going to go with a, a pretty ad-lib one here. I'll go with Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious from Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins was a film I watched as a child to the point where it burnt the tape out. And I loved that song. The concept of that song is just about the little bit of magic. It's the magic in life that makes things supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And, and if you can't find that little bit of magic, then you're going to lead a very boring life. So, yes, that was a, a song that echoed through my childhood and was one that I always loved. It's not as classy or mainstream as some of my other choices, but, yeah, it does remind me of my childhood. It was a beautiful tune. G'day mate, this is Joe coming to you from the Sunshine Coast in Eastern Australia. The Trail Less Travelled podcast is sponsored by Desert Green Hemp, family farmed, organically grown, tested and manufactured in Sisters, Oregon. Desert Green is a collective of farms on the eastern foothills of the Oregon Cascade Range that grow and produce the highest quality full spectrum CBD products currently on the market. Visit DesertGreenHemp.com and remember to use the promo code MANDELA, M-A-N-D-E-L-A. This promo code will get you discounts and special offers. That promo code, MANDELA, directly helps you and the future of Adventure Radio. We're recording the trail has traveled on location in eastern Australia. We are about 100 kilometers north of Brisbane, and I'm here on location with Regan Gordon. Regan is an artist, adventurer, and adrenaline seeker. He grew up in Australia and spent a lot of time in the bush learning from his grandfather how to navigate all of the different things the bush can throw at you, everything from the climate to navigation to interacting with venomous creatures. And that is a pretty sexy thing to talk about. Everybody always loves to hear about the sharks and the snakes and the spiders. And right outside the window where I'm looking right now, there's an awesome surf. And there's also kind of like a river tributary, which I hear that there's a bunch of bull sharks and maybe some tigers that are in this area. So, Regan, can you please tell us about the sharks in Australia? I certainly can. So here on the southern tip of Caloundra, we're sort of looking out over the Pumastone Passage and out to Moreton Bay. In the background, you can probably just make out Morton Island. Morton Bay is the, from my memory, I think the fact is it's the third largest breeding ground of tiger sharks in the world. The common canals in the area are full of bull sharks. They're quite regular. Although there is still a lot of people swimming the, the canals, and especially in the Pumastone Passage here, you see people kite surfing and a lot of uh, wakeboarding and stuff goes on down the river in the 
so a lot of families still use the waterways and still swim in there and, and predominantly it is quite safe as we come out of the passage into happy valley which is the surf break just here it's a spot that i've surfed a lot of times over the years and as you surf in the the local area you come across different species in different areas the occasion of seeing a shark is pretty rare some surfers might go their whole life and, and never see a shark i've had the pleasure and the fright of seeing quite a few in the Pumastone passage if you surf late in the afternoons up on happy valley here against the rocks there's often quite a lot of little school sharks or what might be called gummy sharks they've got teeth they're sharp, they're not overly big. The sharks themselves aren't overly big. They'll grow anything up to a 1.2 metres or something like that. They're not very aggressive, and they quite often swim in schools. They'll be, you know, if you see one, there's probably others around. They're fairly docile too. They're not, they're not aggressive. So often when you're surfing through that section, a lot of longboarders will tell you stories about hitting sharks. So as you surf through the water, you'll quite often feel one knock off the bottom of the board, and, and that's just because you've come through the wave with them unexpecting to... To, you know, for you to be there. They're harmless, generally. I've never had an issue with them. There's even been times I've been standing outside of the water and I can see them feeding in amongst the rocks. They're, they're lovely. They're, they're cool little sharks. No harm to anyone, really. Some of the bull sharks that I've seen in the area are a little bit more intimidating and encounters with bull sharks often aren't, aren't positive. They are overly curious as well. They'll come up and have a little peek and a poke at you if they want and that's generally a good indication you should bugger off and, and get out of the water and, and leave it alone. In snorkelling around the area, I've seen a couple of baby bull sharks and they look adorable. They're like little miniature footballs with wings on the side and teeth at the front and um, a tail on the back. Very cute. At the same time, still probably pretty dangerous. There's been a couple of times here at Kings Beach, which is the next beach around from uh, Happy Valley, the first time I ever encountered a shark was there, and I've encountered a few there. And uh, a friend and I had gone out after school for a surf. I was riding a hand surfer for anyone who doesn't know, that's essentially just a, a plank of wood or a piece of plastic that you put on your hand. It's got a special shape to it so that it holds you into the wave and a strap on the back of it so it doesn't get torn away. You generally ride those with a pair of fins to help you kick and propel yourself onto the waves. They're great fun, but um, you pretty much look like a tea bag dangling in the water to a shark when you're riding a hand surfer. My mate was on a surfboard. We were sitting two or three metres away from each other, and the surf was wild. There was a lot of big troughs rolling through, not a lot of actual waves, just lots of rough sea. The sea was bobbing up and down probably a metre to two metres every time, so one minute you're two metres up, next minute you're two metres down. As we went up on one of our journeys up to the top of a trough, in the low in front of us, the back of a shark became exposed who had just swum directly underneath us and his whole back and then his fin, his back's fin came out of the water and you could get an indication of the general size of the shark. So he would have been close on, his, on the two metre mark and he had a good solid girth, you know, it was a big wide shark. At the time, I'm not really sure what it was. In hindsight, I would say it was probably a bronze whaler, but I'm not 100% sure. Anyway, he swam straight underneath us and my mate and I looked at each other, didn't speak, gave each other that look like, was that an effing shark? Mm, that was a shark. <laughs> and we turned around and swam straight back in. Coincidentally, we'd both been out in the water for about half an hour and we'd, neither of us had really caught any good waves, a little bit of an arm here or a shoulder there. And then finally the shark inspired us both to turn around and catch probably the best wave that had gone past on the day and we each went separate ways. 
normally when you catch waves you'll pull off somewhere before the shore and head back out for another wave we both rode this wave all the way to shore I was still kicking when I hit the sand and yeah that was probably my first ever shark encounter although I've seen a couple at Kings and and then over the years snorkeling my mates and I got into a, a period where we, we got right into spear fishing and, and we were up at Maloolaba which is probably about 20 or 30 k's just north of Caloundra here it's one of the major fishing ports in the area we were up there snorkeling around there's about five or six of us we were teaching a couple of mates how to use the hand spears they were first timers so we were um, shooting small species basically getting some practice in spending some time in the water and after shooting a few fish and collecting a few we'd sort of in some respects burlied up the water and as we got out we left a flag out in the water that we'd put out there so that boats wouldn't come too close to us because we were right near the river mouth so it gave them an indication that some people were snorkeling in the area and we'd left that out there and the youngest bloke of the of the group we told him to go out and get the flag oi brian go out and grab the flag and we all looked over to the flag and just beside the flag the back of a bronze whaler shark came out of the water surfaced and then went back under (laughs) (laughs) needless to say brian wasn't going to go get the flag i'm pretty sure i ended up swimming back out and getting the flag but with a hand spear and a snorkel on I didn't feel intimidated by a shark at the river mouth. That was probably just having a peek anyway, you know. He was just looking around. Over the years, I found myself working in fisheries and eventually did a trip on a boat from Tonga back to Australia. We bring a boat that the company I worked for owned. They'd sent to Tonga to fish for pelagic fish over there, so swordfish, marlin, tuna, in a fairly wide range of other fish as well, but that was their main sort of catch. Tonga is a Pacific island in between Australia and America. It's probably about, say, maybe a 1,000 kilometres north of the tip of New Zealand. So if you drew a direct line from Brisbane to California, I think you'd probably go directly over the top of Tonga. And it's also on the international date line. So. But, yeah, so we bring a boat back from Tonga, and obviously it was a long-lining boat, so we were, we were fishing for things like sharks as well. And the first live shark we pulled onto deck my great mate who his nickname is Yipper he doesn't like his own name so we'll just refer to him as Yipper he um, grabbed a gaff off the wall of the boat and as the shark came up to the seawall of the boat he leant out and gaffed the shark and pulled it onto the deck and then screamed at me to, to grab a gaff and join in and I'd already grabbed a gaff but I walked backwards from the shark until I hit the other seawall of the boat and continued to walk backwards <laughs> I wasn't getting anywhere near that shark by that stage Yipper had taken the gaff out of its mouth and was on the shark's back riding it like a rodeo bull with his knees in around its gills so that it couldn't turn around and bite him after a few sharks I got the knack of it and when I was off it was they're not as in, well they're as intimidating as you think but um but like all animals there's a way to deal with them and and we were there to make money and that was the job I was employed to do so I had to man up and get it sorted there was a stage but on that trip where we caught a shark that was um we had caught a lot of those sharks where there was mako and thresher we were mostly catching but there was one shark we pulled in I'm not sure exactly what species it was but it was the biggest shark I've ever seen often the fish do die on the line often you'll be pulling a fish in a nice live beautiful 90 kilo tuna big eye yellowfin tuna and just as it gets to the side of the boat this gray murky thing appears then suddenly there's a flash of white red gums then red blood then nothing and you're just left with the fish head so the, the sharks out there are massive the concept of falling off the edge of the boat was always daunting knowing that you will end up like one of those tunas 
So anyway, we caught this big shark and we pulled it in and it was alive and it was over 21 foot. It was so big that we couldn't pull it onto the boat and it was biting at the side of the boat and uh, we were trying to to subdue it and uh, eventually it got to the point where we were, we were going to have to use this big metal gaff that's attached to uh, a winch that comes off the boom and the boom is basically comes off the centre point of the boat and it could swing over the side of the boat we, we can lower things down and lower th- and lift things on with the boom with the hydraulic power of it we put the big metal gaff in the shark's mouth which is facing us but the issue is the shark had to come on tail first or he's uncontrollable so that meant someone had to climb out onto the shark with a smaller gaff with a piece of main line, the monofilament line that we used to, to fish, which is a big, thick, thick plastic line. Someone had to climb out onto the shark and loop that around the shark's tail so it was possible for the, the actual gaff to spin around and pull the shark up by the tail. So one of the boys did that. Thankfully, that wasn't me. And then when we got the shark upended and dragged him onto the boat, five of us... Well, we had him dangling in, in midair, but we had our knees locked together and we were hugging the shark's head, essentially, while someone got in there and rendered the shark lifeless. At the same time, we also cut the tendons in the gills because sharks are renowned, even when dead, to still have just a touch of life in them. Sharks, when they're lying on the deck of the boat before processing to be put away for food you can often see in their eyes a look of just sheer malice and aggression they it's as if they follow you around the deck and they're waiting for that one moment where you step too close and there are a lot of stories of sharks that were considered to be dead biting fishermen you especially don't put your hands in their mouth and that's why we always cut their tendons around the gills so that even if they did have a moment of energy come back before you process the fish Mm -hmm. they were of no harm that big shark in question i think he was 21 or 20 something feet and he weighed 360 kilos he was an absolute monster i always think um it's a bit sad to tell stories about the the long lining fishing but i'm sure we've all sat down in restaurants and well not all of us but some of us have sat down and enjoyed these kinds of things so so that's how it comes about there's been other times where i've been snorkeling and, and had these sharks that we have in Australia called Wobbegon sharks or carpet sharks, another name for them. They're a beautiful mottled brown. They've got a, a strange curved head and they've got a lot of rows of sort of quite gummy teeth, but not overly sharp, but still very dangerous and full of bacteria. So I've been out spearfishing before and speared mullet and shared my mullet with the wobbegons that sort of swim out of the rocks because they can smell the fish mm-hmm. that you've speared. They know that something's been killed, so they come out for a scavenge and look around. And, yeah, occasionally I'll hand one back to them and, you know, make a bit of a friend. A lot of people tell me stories about being bitten by wobbegons and how they wouldn't do it. This has got a lot to do with my grandfather, the way he taught us to handle animals and be respectful. And well, I just instantly turn around and go, well, here you go, mate. Mm-hmm. You can have one too. So, yeah, fed a few wobbegons and... Over the years, I've, I've had some other shark encounters. One probably most memorable one was surfing at my favourite beach at Moffat's. And I had a group of friends. We used to all ride our surf skis together. And, and we went out one afternoon. And that afternoon was a great afternoon in the surf. The waves were huge and consistent and nice and strong. And as it, the afternoon played on and sort of started to slip away, the sunset came on and, and a lot of the blokes got out of the water and that left it to me and my friends so we were just going wave after wave after wave to ourselves and then eventually my mates burn out of energy but I just couldn't stop in surfing there's an issue we talk about it's called one last wave mm-hmm. it's it's a conundrum when you're a surfer one last wave means 
I'm as good as not going in. It means I want to go in, but if this one last wave is as good as, if not better than the ones before, then I have to stay out because there could be one more again. Mm -hmm. But if your last wave isn't so good, well, then it's probably a little bit easier to, to call it a day. It must have got to the point where it was quite dark. I don't know what time of night it was, but all the floodlights at Moffat Beach sort of light up the ocean there enough for me to pick out the white water. So I couldn't see the waves coming anymore, but I could tell from the white water where I was and then sort of was judging where the zone to catch the waves was from that. As I was lining up waves and I was watching for these little white peaks to break in front of me so i catch the reflection, I felt this sudden push from one of my sides and... I was nearly knocked off the ski sideways and whatever it was that pushed me had turned around right beside me and the tail of whatever it was had touched the board and pushed the board. And as I looked down, I couldn't see the shark, but I could see the silhouette of a fish that was definitely big enough to be a shark. And there aren't many fish that just swim up and want to see what your paddle ski's all about. So yeah, I instantly turned around and, and called it a night. It was a pretty sketchy moment. It was one of those moments where you're like, well, that's as close as I've ever come to being eaten by a shark. He was checking me out. Yeah. He liked my style. <laughs> awesome. That is the voice of Regan Gordon, artist, adventurer, and adrenaline seeker. Regan's been talking about surfing experiences and encounters with sharks in Australia. Regan, it's now time for another song. Okay, so I'm going to pick a song by Rodrigo e Gabriela. They're a Brazilian brother and sister duo. Used to play heavy metal in a band, and I don't think things really worked out for them, so they, they split off and started doing their own thing. They play a lot of amazing songs, but um, I'm going to choose one that's sort of a little bit more relevant to me. It's uh, their cover of the Metallica song, Orion, which is played on acoustic guitar with their a Spanish sort of flamenco guitaring style and the way they tap their guitars to create the bass tones and, and drum beats is just next level it's it's an amazing song it's a song that takes you away there's no lyrics it really is something for the dreamer it's great it can it just lets your imagination flow and it's got a good inspiring beat it's the kind of music you might listen to on the way to go for a surf or a mountain bike ride it, it, it can get you right amped up as much as it it has that sense of beauty to you know enjoying the simple things and and someone stripping something so complicated back into into a quite pure and simple form is is beautifully done This afternoon, the Trail Less Traveled is recording on location in Australia, eastern Australia, about 100 kilometers north of Brisbane. We're on the coast in Caloundra, and looking out the window, you can see the ocean, and you can see where the kite boarders are enjoying the waves and the wind. I'm sitting here with Regan Gordon. He is an artist, adventurer, and adrenaline seeker. Regan has so many different adventures under his belt, everything from surfing from a child, uh, walking around in the bush with his grandfather, being the wheelie master of this part of Australia, potentially all of Australia, and surfing and surf skiing, as well as downhill mountain biking. But Regan, when I asked you to send me your bio, you said you're known for having a, a beautiful beard, which I, I can see you have, and very admired greatly, and that helped you score a role in the recent Pirates of the Caribbean film. Let's hear about that adventure. For people who obviously uh, don't have any idea what I look like, which is kind of the concept of the radio world, I've, I've got long, gingery, sort of golden brown hair, as well as a large moustache. Technically, a moustache only grows down to your lip, but I decided that mine would grow a little bit further. 
and it's grown completely off my face three inches or so down below my chin mm-hmm. and it's nice and gingery as well and, and has a bit of a blonde tip to it the way that I came to find out about the extras roles in Pirates of the Caribbean is I have a friend who he's always been more interested in being an actor so one day he came over to my house and a few of my friends also have long hair and beards and he said to us are you guys aware of the fact that they're casting for Pirates of the Caribbean they're literally just going up to people in the street and going do you want to be in Pirates of the Caribbean because of their appearance I instantly like I love pirates my 30th birthday party was a pirate party it was was awesome so I was instantly intrigued and a few of my mates were pretty keen too by the time we motivated ourselves to do anything about it that style of casting had finished they weren't just pulling people off the street so you actually had to go to a relevant casting agent within a few weeks time I had a phone call from the agency saying yep the people from Pirates of the Caribbean are interested in your appearance and they would like you to come down today for a costume fit on the Gold Coast which is approximately 200 kilometres south of where we are now the issue was I was at work uh, which was going to be a bit of a problem. So I rang up the boss and explained it quite simply that if I left now, I could go for a costume fit out and potentially be in Pirates of the Caribbean. They were delighted by the concept. And so next thing you know, I'm, I'm home, showered, clean, changed, and on my way to um, Pirates of the Caribbean, just smiling to myself like, Mum's going to be stoked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so anyway, this is the, the fifth Pirates of the Caribbean too. It's uh, the, the Dead Man Tells No Tales. So anyway, I got down to the Gold Coast and there was a bunch of motley-looking fellas, quite often with long hair and um, different ethnicities. Uh, there was women as well. And, and they sectioned us off into groups and then sent us into these change rooms. And I was standing in there with a tall, dark-haired bloke with a big, black, bushy beard and long black hair. And we introduced ourselves to each other and it was quite a, an unusual experience. Here we were in a change room, never met before, and we are about to get changed into all these costumes together. And then two people from the costume department came in and, and they were very colourful and uh, said to us, oh, you guys look like, definitely like pirates. Uh, oh, I think we need more, we need more townsfolk. We might dress you up as townsfolk. And I was instantly disappointed. I was like, I don't want to be a townsfolk. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be a pirate. And then a, um, someone more senior walked into the room and looked at us and went, oh, those guys could be pirate prisoners. Yep, pirate prisoners, the special extras. That's him yeah. straight away. So next thing you know, um, they've got their agenda set and off they went into the costume racks and five minutes or so later they came back. I was lucky enough to get a pair of three-quarter length pants and that had the unusual 1700, 1500-style button-up mechanism. It's complicated, I can't explain it. <laughs> We've definitely evolved when it comes to buttons and zips. I was wearing an open vest with no shirt underneath, uh, no shoes, and that was my costume. I think at one stage I had a sash on as well, and they took me out to the lady who was head of costume. She was this big, fat English lady. And she was very, very flamboyant. And the costume designer that I was with sort of said to like presented me like a, his piece of work. What do you think? Have I, is this all right? And she goes, look at him. Yeah. He's brilliant. Yeah. Off you go and get your makeup done, darling. You're a pirate. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is great. I'm, this, I'm right in my element here. Being in the film industry, it was chaotic. The dates all changed. It went from seven or eight dates over three or so weeks to ending up being about 13 dates over seven weeks the starts were really early three o'clock morning starts and quite late but when you got there every day it was like the first day you had spent at high school there was the actual division that we were given for the relevant time period as well like so if i was with the group of pirate prisoners 
we were looked down upon by the other extras because we were the dirty, dank-looking guys and in um, you know ratty clothes and covered in grease and that kind of thing. As a part of the pirate prisoners, I was with about twelve blokes, twelve or thirteen blokes, and we all got on pretty well. We all told some pretty shabby jokes and told some funny stories and and had a good laugh together. And my first day on set, I was completely underdressed. I didn't realise that I needed to take so much extra clothing of my own to stay warm in between shoots so I froze my tush off and then we got to the stage on the first day where something actually happened and they're like alright we need the private prisoners to come down I'm like awesome so we walked down onto set a couple of the boys were already in this horse drawn carriage that was a prison carriage and they were filming the scene of, of the carriage being drawn into the little township and a couple of the boys had done it once already with the cameras rolling and then they just chucked a few extra prisoners in there to make it look a bit fuller and I was one of the extras. I jumped in and I said to the boys, what are we doing? They gave me a quick description of what the director or assistant director had told them to do and then I filed into a position and suited up to do that as well. And as we started rolling into the actual township, I couldn't help but smile to myself. I'm like, my mum's going to love this. Mm-hmm. I'm on Pirates of the Caribbean. This is going to be amazing. And I'm smiling out of the carriage window and, um, and I'm supposed to be a prisoner about to be killed. You know, like, so I'm just having the day of my life. It's like, oh, look at all those poor prisoners. They're going to die. That guy seems extremely happy. About <laughs> is he bipolar? So um, next thing you hear, God! My face dropped and I went, oh, that was me. I'm not in character. Anyway, we, we went through that a few times and we filmed that from different angles and then we filmed other scenes. There was a, just a lot of chaos on set and they were often yelling out, can we get this group over here and that group over there? Please remember your spots, people. It was very much like you were school students, mm-hmm. you know, treated like morons. But we, a lot of people were, you know, did need to be ushered around constantly. It was, it was good fun. It was very exciting. The pinnacle for me other than all those special moments that I had with all those people, one of the pinnacles was when Johnny Depp came in and was, you know, close and personal with us. He came up to the carriage and he looked in and here's six or seven sweaty, stinky, horrible-looking blokes dressed up like pirate prisoners that he's suddenly got to interact with. And it's a prison carriage. It's not the Queen's carriage. This is the most dank and horrible one you can get. There's no spare space. The seats are tiny. It was built to look the part, and it did, and it felt the part. Even rolling around in it was very uncomfortable. He's just stuck his head in and looked in and gone, wow, this is a bit of a scene. The ice needs to be broken. And in classic Captain Jack Sparrow style, he just goes, well, who's been in the back of one of these before, eh, boys? And we all just cracked up laughing, and being Australians, we started singing I'm Going Home in the Back of a Party Wagon, which is a classic song we sing if someone gets taken away from a party. Yeah, so he broke the ice, and then he told us his story about one time he was in a cop car, and he was one time I was in a cop car in New York, and I'd been picked up for doing this and that, and next thing you know, I turned to the bloke beside me and said, oh, what are you in here for? And he told me to F off. So I did. <laughs> <laughs> he stayed in Captain Jack Sparrow's character the whole time, and, but he spoke to us each time. Uh, he chatted with us. We told stories. He told stories back. He was just one of the boys. He, he made it like that for everyone, so it was a comfortable experience. It was a great experience, and um, you know, having the appearance that I have was the reason that I was on set, and it was a great bonus being on set to have your own long hair attached to your own head and have your own facial hair because the blokes who didn't quite often would sit for an hour in the morning to have things attached to their face that they would then were not allowed to touch all day and then when it came to cleaning your makeup off which we were covered in scum and filth and like my hair on an average day at the set they would put 
handfuls of sunscreen in my hair, handfuls of oil, handfuls of hair gel, handfuls of dirt. They, they would just, my hair was claggy as it'd take like three or four washes when you got home to clean it out. Mm. And they'd often say, don't bother washing your hair because we're going to do it again the next day. But that might be a week away, so you can't wait a week to, to come back being that filthy. But yes, it was a great experience, and I have utilised my appearance in that mechanism many times since. The voice of Regan Gordon, artist, adventurer, and adrenaline seeker. He was talking about his time in the most recent Pirates of the yep. Caribbean movie. Regan, thank you so much for your time and energy joining me on the trail as traveled and recording two shows. Oh, that's okay. It's been really good fun chatting with you, and I could literally talk stories all day. It's just great fun to be chatting. Awesome. Let's end your show with three bits of advice for the listener. Maybe advice on how to survive in the bush. All right, so three pieces of advice on how to survive in the bush is one, obviously supplies is relevant. If you don't have the right supplies, you're going to have to find water first, and clean water is the most important water. So don't just drink any old water. The second most important advice is be geographically aware of where you are. In Australia, often people who get lost stay lost because they'll wander around aimlessly in circles or meander through the bush. Pick a direction for a reason that's intelligent and travel in that direction. Leave signs for others who might cross your trail to re-engage with you if, if necessary. And the third greatest piece of advice I can give you is, is respect the bush itself. All sorts of things can change on an instant in the bush in Australia. In the highlands, you can have storms roll in within seconds. In the tropical coastal areas, you can have cyclones roll in. And at the same time, you've got to bear in mind that the actual heat and dryness is as capable of killing you within hours as anything else is. Sometimes the best mechanism in Australia to survive is to just be still. Spend the day chilling out, spend the night figuring it out. Beautiful. Regan, what song would you like to end your show with? I'm going to end the show with a Mike Snow song called Paddling Out. It's the kind of song that reminds me of going surfing, but at the same time I think it's a good send-off of the statement paddling out. So this is me paddling out and saying goodbye. Namaste Missoula and listeners around the world. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from the most remote locations around the world. You can subscribe to the free podcast wherever you gather podcasts and consider visiting traillesstraveled.net to see pictures, archive previous episodes, and contact me. I'd like to thank my guest for this week, Regan Gordon, artist, adventurer, and adrenaline seeker, based on the Sunshine Coast of Australia. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Has Traveled. The Trail Has Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana, or on location around the world, in order for me to find these adventurers and connect with them in their natural habitat. Tonight's episode was recorded in Caloundra, Australia. It's The Trail Has Traveled, the community's source for adventure information and inspiration. Every Sunday night at 6, Mountain Time, and you can stream it online at trail1033.com. My adventure tip this week is, when you're traveling internationally and checking a bag, it's not a bad idea to throw in some underwear and a change of clothes, just in case that bag does not make it to the destination at the same time that you do. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. 
but until next week's adventure, please do something for Mother Earth and get outside. Shred the gnar. Because as we know, the gnar does not shred itself.